Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, where Tuhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a second podcast tonight. It's terrible. I have learned at Auckland Writers' Festival you always get applause if you mock Australia. It's, you're an easy crowd. I'll remember that. My name is Michael Williams. I'm the director of the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, and it's thrilling to be in Auckland on a Saturday night. Um, <laughs> Well, if you mock Auckland, you get an even bigger laugh, it turns out. That's, no, it's genuinely thrilling. I don't think we're going to stay in Auckland all night. I think that we're going to be taken uh, back in time. We're be- going to be taken to a place of war. We're going to be taken to key historical moments by our guest tonight. The festival has been extraordinarily good. In fact, a big round of applause for Anne O'Brien, the artistic director, and her team. A big thank you to uh, the board of the festival and all its various supporters, in particular Heartland Bank, have made it possible for Sir Anthony to be with us tonight. So a big round of applause for them as well. Um, But it is thrilling. We have heard many unlikely juxtapositions of words over the past few days. Uh, We've heard words that transport us, that trigger our imagination, that move us. But no more unlikely juxtaposition than rock star military historian, which I think... You can imagine what my daughter thinks of that. Yeah. No, I I have no doubt that you'd be mocked very much for that at home. But you you shouldn't be, as everyone in this theatre knows, uh, if anyone deserves that epithet, it's you. Um, I am not going to give a detailed biography, mainly because we'd be here all night running through your various awards and accolades for your many books. Uh, an extraordinary writer. Uh, you've published four novels, 12 books of non-fiction, your work has appeared in 32 foreign languages and sold more than 8 million copies, which is probably a dated figure. I mean, it's probably 9 million by the time we walked out here. Uh, According to Bookseller, Beaver is the best-selling historian of the Bookscan era. Um, A little recognised historical age, the Bookscan era, that one. I know. I don't know. It's sort of Pleistocene or whatever it might be. (laughs) It is, but it is not surprising. It is hard to think of another historian who is at once magisterial and intimate, forensic and humane. Ladies and gentlemen, before we start, one more massive round of applause for Anthony Beaver. It is such a pleasure to have you here, and I want to get to Arnhem soon. But before we get there, I I thought I'd like to start a little more openly. And I want to start by asking you whether to be a good military historian, you need to have served yourself. I think it's certainly a distinct advantage, and I'll explain why. I mean, armies are very strange organizations. Uh, They're often portrayed as sort of cold, Uh, calculating um, institutions. But in fact, they often need a very strange form of emotional logic, whether it's dealing with tragedy, dealing with with death. Um, The preparation, the whole training thing, it's terribly important to be able to understand the mentality and why things are done. Sometimes it's been dangerous, I think, in the past, where you get people coming from external disciplines, whether sociologists or whatever, who are fascinated not only by the subject, but also, I think, attracted by the controversial nature of war and the history of war. And unfortunately, though, quite often they tend, these outsiders tend to try to impose an ideological grid on the subject without really making that effort of empathy to understand what it's like being a soldier and why soldiers behave in the way they do or misbehave in the way that they do. 
Um, and I think that it's terribly important. So from that point of view, it is a great help. But that doesn't mean, by any means, that uh, it should be closed to, to outsiders. I think it's striking the way that in the past, obviously, there were very few women military historians. And I don't really blame them, frankly, because I think the, the subject was very boring when it was written in the past, conventional, top-down, collective version of history, when that was very much more the generals or the staff officers' uh, view of events, trying to make everything sound like a grandmaster's chess game when it was nothing of the sort. But as soon as military history turned into what the great Professor Sir Michael Howard says, the, the history of war rather than military history, then you're talking about the suffering, the fate of civilians caught up in all of this horror. It's a much broader subject as a result, but it's a much more human one. And since then, there have been some excellent women uh, military historians, historians of war, uh, who have come in. I mean, just citing somebody who helped me enormously, you know, Catherine Merrivale, Merrivale who wrote a superb book about um, the Red Army called, e called e Ivan's War. Um, so, you know, as I say, it isn't essential, but it certainly helps. I'm going to get you to expand for a moment on why you think that distinction from Michael Howard is an important one, from military history to history of war. Why, why do you think that's such a significant shift in thinking? I think that we saw a, an extraordinary change in the late 1980s and the early 1990s. Uh, we did, it was a revolution which we didn't recognize at the time. Everything was seemed to be quite exciting suddenly. It was the end of the Cold War, the end of the uh, Soviet Union, uh, Big Bang, um, exchange controls uh, opened up. Uh, society also became, in many ways, slightly less hierarchical. It was, became slightly flatter. I mean, it, was a brave, it seemed to be a slightly brave new world at that time. But it was also, of course, the start of globalism, or globalization, rather, I should say. Um, and this actually was a period where so many things were changing at that time. And I think it'll take historians many years before they'll be able to work out whether all of these changes came together naturally or whether they were somehow linked. Because the combination, uh, which although it seemed exciting at the time, actually has proved quite devastating in many other areas. But I know this is something we might well uh, come on to later in the political effects, the effects that we see in, in Europe today. Well, that inability to distinguish between whether things are interlinked or just uh, running parallel to each other must be something as a historian you see all the time, the way in which the, the idea about the causal relationships between things um, is often one that's applied out of convenience rather than out of rigour. Is that fair to say? Uh, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, there's the old, uh, uh, the old thing, you know, history is just one damn thing after another. Um, well, that, <laughs> or, you know, is it a question of cause and event? I mean, I remember Philip, Philip Bobbitt in, the, uh, uh, in, his, in his great work on the Shield of Achilles was sort of arguing very much that it is causal, it is cause and event. Uh, and there is a sort of chain going backwards. But uh, that actually slightly ignores all the side effects of things coming in. And what we have seen at, this, in, at that particular period, which we're living the results of now, is a considerable number of side effects feeding into uh, the sort of, if you like, the central chain of, uh, of, of cause and effect. I want to come back in a minute to what the end of the Cold War meant for you as a historian and the kind of access you had and the opportunities that afforded you when it came to researching Stalingrad in particular. But before we get there, I want to just go back to your own period of service, 
Do I understand correctly that you were not before then or at that time a particularly diligent student of history? Um, well, no, I always enjoyed history. In fact, my first love was history, which actually came from, you know, um, primary prep school um, and um, had a brilliant history teacher. And that's the way that sort of love always starts. Uh, also, then at Sandhurst, I studied under, under John Keegan. Uh, no, I was in revolt when I was at school. I mean, at Winchester, I, I hated the place. And um, uh, in fact, I have a very rare academic achievement. I think I'm the only, uh, I think I'm the only Wickhamist who actually failed both his A-levels, which was A-level history and A-level English. Um, and um, funny enough, when I remember Amanda Foreman, who did that book about Georgiana, Duchess of Denture, she wrote an article and sort of saying, there's Anthony Beaver who failed his A-level. The headmaster of Winchester got in touch the next day saying, this is not the message we're trying to get across. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that there's some high school history and English students here who are taking great comfort from your story there. I hope so. You and know, teachers it's not the end of the road. You can then start to educate yourself. Do you remember the, that early love affair with history, apart from having very good teachers, what it was that drew you to it? What, uh, what that kind of initial magic as a reader of history um, where it found itself? I think it was always the great stories. Um, you, you, the Samuel Johnson Prize always had the, the slogan, you know, all the best stories are true. And I think that's uh, absolutely essential. It's one of the reasons why I'm so furious with um, so many war movies and so forth, because they think they can improve on the original um, and actually distort it. So um, I, I think that, you know, you do not need to mess with history. That's a digression I can't resist for a well, moment. Well, <laughs> now or later. <laughs> now, later, we'll take it. Yeah, I understand you have a particular rancor for saving Private Ryan. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the first, the opening sequence is, is actually extraordinary. Uh, it's an extraordinary piece of cinematography. But uh, later on, it is literally every single war movie cliche of the dirty dozen sort. Um, it's, you know, it's straight out of central screenwriting with the arc of character, with, uh, um, you know, improvised weapons defending a bridge against an SS panzer counterattack. I mean, every cliche in the book. But I mean, what was astonishing, and I think was quite revealing, was that Spielberg uh, was making this movie uh, at a time when he and his generation were still scarred by the Vietnam War. Uh, I think sort of morally scarred in a way that it had been such a moral quagmire. And this was the time really of that sort of great myth of the greatest generation of the Americans who fought in the Second World War. And it was a myth-making, romanticizing um, effort in many, many ways. There were one or two good elements in the film. I mean, I think it was fascinating the way that he tried to bring out uh, the clash between the individual need to survive and the collective need of uh, discipline. I mean, there was very much of a, uh, a, a tension there. Um, but basically, by the time it got to the end, I was asked to review it by Newsweek. In fact, the review was promptly spiked. Uh, there was no way that they were going to publish an attack on what had become almost a sacred film in the, in the United States. Uh, but I thought it was dreadful. Um, and I've always, anyway. <laughs> When uh, uh, there's a smatter of, smattering of applause of people back there who are, I can't stand Matt Damon. They're, they're, they're with you entirely. I, I'm interested because you talk about, you know, you had a review spiked because you said something negative about a uh, cultural artifact that had become sacred. There must be a tremendous risk as a historian to say a phrase like the myth of the greatest generation. 
Like a, a sentence like that must get you in a lot of trouble with your American colleagues and peers. Well, I was funny enough, I think that sometimes they can, I think they're a bit more robust now. I remember with the Arden book, um, the fact that I, that the Americans had gone on so much about the Malmedy massacre when the SS massacred uh, over 80 uh, American prisoners. Um, but what was striking, the more research one did on the Ardennes was quite how many German prisoners were shot by the Americans. And in fact, they had their own massacre at Chenogne. Um, and you know, Patton actually acknowledges it in his diaries. Uh, and he actually says, I hope this won't get out. <laughs> um, Never so a good thing to write down. Well, especially, <laughs> yes. Um, but I, what I found intriguing in that particular way was that um, I had expected a, a pretty rough reception from that point of view in America. But actually I found, and Rick Atkinson, who's a great friend, a wonderful American historian, uh, he said, no, 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 he said, I think you'll find that we're a bit more robust now in that particular way. Uh, and Rick certainly, I think, has done a marvelous job in sort of opening up American minds to seeing both the, the heroism, but also the more scandalous uh, and the more horrific episodes too. Your most recent book is Arnhem, The Battle for the Bridges, 1944, and it feels to me that this conversation is germane in some ways to the kind of history you're doing in this book. Because I'm interested in the way in which national myth building yes. uh, shapes the way a, a history is told or written. So whether it's the way an American filmmaker would choose to make Saving Private Ryan, for example, yeah. or how different this book would be by uh, a historian who's not an English historian. How much is your Englishness part of your history and how much do you actively work against it when you write? Well, I don't think I actively work against it. I, I hope that I've become much less national, if you like, or patriotic, um, and just looking at the material as objectively as one possibly can. I think a lot of it has also been a question of generation, because in that period after the war, uh, those whose lives had been formed by the war, uh, the myths were uh, maintained and uh, guarded fairly jealously in many cases. Um, but it was also, one has to remember, that every single country had their own version of the Second World War. There was a very parochial uh, version of history created uh, because every country saw the whole of the Second World War through their own experiences and therefore their memories were completely dictated by that. What has been so, I think, incredibly encouraging in the last 20 years or so is the internationalization of history in the way that, for example, in Britain we had a, a, a tremendous number of very good young German historians coming to British universities and to the American and Canadian. Uh, there's been a mixture, a far greater mixture in that particular way. And there have been some very important international conferences. I mean, I remember conferences at, for example, in Canberra at the um, Australian War Memorial where you actually started getting Japanese historians uh, alongside, you know, British, Canadian, American, and of course, Australian. Um, there was even a um, conference in Hawaii with, where they actually got Chinese and Japanese historians, not prepared to sit next to each other or perhaps in the same room, but at least they got them to the same uh, venue. Uh, that, I think, is a huge advantage, and I think that the more that either governments or um, benefactors can uh, contribute to these uh, sort of uh, um, um, conferences, the more one can break down these awful national barriers which have affected the history of the Second World War for so long. What 
what kind of conversations ensue in that situation? I mean, do, is there conflict in the room? Is there, do historians take issue and protect their corner? Or is there, a, is there such a thing as an objective fact or a strong, rigorous piece of historical record that unites people once they're in the room? Um, well, there are, there are, of course, there are different historical traditions. I think one of the huge advantage for British historians, for Anglo-Saxon historians in general, uh, goes, goes back to the fact that it was really a gibbon in the 18th century, writing The Decline and Fall, where we have always acknowledged that history is a branch of literature, totally unlike, say, the German idea of believing somehow that it, it, it is a scientific discipline. It can't be. You can never test history in a laboratory. Uh, and it's preposterous to pretend anything in that particular way. But that does not in any way undermine the duty of the historian or affect the duty of the historian to understand and to convey that understanding to the reader. I don't think that historians uh, should try to make huge moral judgments or anything like that. That should be up to, up to the reader. The trouble, particularly with the sort of German continental uh, school, is that their idea is that you have a thesis and then you have to justify that thesis. But that means you actually start picking the material in the archives which will support your particular thesis. As in, for example, Goldhagen's Hitler's Willing Executioners, he had this um, obsession that the Germans were inherently anti-Semitic. But under Frederick the Great, Prussia was the least anti-Semitic country in Europe. Um, what's far more fascinating is where did this anti-Semitism arise in the latter part of the 19th century? You know, what caused it to uh, make, um, make Germany uh, develop in the way that it did? I mean, I think there's that marvelous moment uh, in Raoul Hilberg in his uh, history of the uh, destruction of the European Jews, when in one of his introductions he actually says, if in 1900 you had predicted that a civilized country in Europe uh, would have gone in for the industrial uh, killing of Jews, you'd have said, oh, those French, they're capable of anything because of the Dreyfus um, and the anti-Semitism in France at that stage. So why do you think it was? I, I know this is a digression, but I'm curious for you, uh, uh, just that question, when you come to it, uh, what was it about Germany in that period that allowed for the rise of anti-Semitism the way it did? Well, I think in many ways, funny enough, it was the influence of science, or one might even say fake science or pseudoscience. I mean, the eugenics. I mean, there were people, obviously, in Britain who also believed in eugenics. I mean, even at one stage, um, Churchill was sort of quite keen on the, on the idea. Um, there was very much more an emphasis on uh, racial origins, on uh, blood, on notions. I mean, I remember the sort of that great Edwardian thing when they talked to people, oh, bad blood will out, and, you know, phrases like that. That. Um, maybe people will say, oh, well, that was sort of an early, early attempt at genetics. Um, but I didn't think it was. It was a question of basically um, trying to justify people's prejudices. So you mentioned the duty of the historian a few times there, and I'm, I'm interested in that as a kind of foundational article of faith for yourself. When you set out to write a work of history, what are your, what do you see as your chief responsibilities, your chief duties? Well, your we, you're, you're very, very acutely aware 
that you cannot be completely objective. You know that everybody has their own sort of prejudices, their own um, background, their own, their own sort of development. Um, and of course, you've got a certain number of fixed ideas. But what I do find, and this is the contrary thing to, say, the Goldhagen looking for material to support a thesis, is I find the most exciting moments are in archives when you come up with material which completely contradicts what you'd assume to be the case. Um, that is always the most um, exciting. I mean, that's where it's like finding, you know, panning for gold and actually suddenly seeing this real gleam um, in those rather dusty papers. There is, I mean, uh, that seems to me to be epitomised in, I think it's in your acknowledgements in Arnhem. I don't have it marked because I didn't know I was going to reference it. But you say the only point to writing a work of history like this is new information. Yes. That that's the justification for another book on a subject. Well, to be perfectly honest, I think that, um, you know, readers are no fools. They know perfectly well that if you're, somebody's going to come up with yet another book on the same subject using just secondary sources, um, they're not going to be told anything that's really very new. Um, so I do think, that, but I mean, apart from anything else, what's the point of um, you know, just doing another book if you're just going to rely on secondary sources? Um, the archives are fascinating. I mean, you know, they can be unbelievably frustrating, as one's found, particularly, say, as I, in Russian archives. Um, and quite often you find find yourself playing sort of scissors, paper, stone uh, when you're being blocked. Um, Ian Kershaw once joked to me, he said, you thought you had trouble in the Russian archives. He said, you tried the Japanese archives uh, from the point of view of the way of being blocked by the authorities. I, I think we can't move past the Russian archives. Having hit that point, it seems to me to be such a fundamental moment in your work and in your history. And I'd like you to just share with us a bit what that experience was in those archives, in the writing of Stalingrad, and the kind of access that you had, and why it was perhaps so liberal as it was. Well, no, it wasn't exactly liberal. What happened Relatively. was I was phenomenally lucky on timing, um, because when I was commissioned uh, by Penguin to um, do Stalingrad, and in fact it was, it was my editor's idea, I would be the first to acknowledge that, and I owe her a huge amount. In fact, my first reaction was, uh, good God, I mean, you know, we had, um, um, children were incredibly young, it would mean abandoning uh, Artemis and the children for months at a time and all the rest of it. Uh, so I was rather dubious, but my um, literary agent was kicking me under the table saying, this is a bloody good idea, start sounding a bit more enthusiastic, and of course he was absolutely right. But at that stage, I had no idea what one would be able to get out in the archives. I'd already worked in the archives in 1992 when they first opened for the book which Artemis and I did together on Paris after the liberation, where they had all the material of the French Communist Party. And that was interesting, exciting uh, times. I mean, I remember Stéphane Courtois, the great French historian on the, uh, on the French Communist Party, who caused such a scandal with the material that he discovered. Uh, I asked him what it was like working in the archives at this particular moment when they were opening up. And he said, mon vieux, c'est le vrai Wild West ici. And it was le vrai Wild West. It was totally chaotic. Um, anyway, well, that was one particular archive which was open. It was the old party archive, which had all the material and the Comintern archive. And it was fascinating to sort of suddenly see this stuff. And, um, but then I was starting to work, and I had a wonderful, and still have, uh, Russian colleague that I worked with called Luba Vinogradova. 
And uh, Luba was very, was in her very early 20s, she was just finishing her doctorate in plant biology, um, which for me was perfect. I did not want to have a professional historian at that stage, because a lots of friends at Oxford said, listen, we can easily find you a young Russian historian, they're desperate for work, uh, to work. And I said, I, don't, I didn't want one, because, you know, I wouldn't be able to control, my reading of Russian wasn't nearly good enough to be able to sort of control what the sort of material that they were uh, working for or looking for, because I knew from that time in 1992 there's just so much material in those archives, there are squiggles in Cyrillic in the margin and all the rest of it, you had to have a real native Russian speaker. Anyway, so Luba and I had to go off to the Ministry of Defence and the colonel there, who we had to negotiate with for access to the main archive at Podolsk, which is sort of two hours south of Moscow. And this was somebody called Colonel Romanstiev. And uh, he said, uh, we have simple rule in our archive. You tell us the subject, we choose the files. Well, um, <laughs> there was no point trying to say, well, hang on, that's not how it works in the other archives. So to give you an idea, I said, well, yes, um, uh, to give you an idea, you know I'm wanting to write about uh, the Stalin campaign, the Battle of Stalingrad, and I said, to give you an idea, in the German archives in Freiburg, um, the most interesting reports of all are those by outsiders, i.e. by doctors and by priests attached to the German divisions. Roar of laughter from the Russian colonel, no priests in the Red Army, and I said, no, no, I know there were no priests in the Red Army, but the political department, i.e. the commissars, their reports, and that was where all the gold was. Uh, what I found when we eventually got there was that Stalin was so desperate to know exactly what was happening in Stalingrad every night because he, was, he thought the generals were lying to him that the political department was flying back a report between roughly 20 to uh, 24 pages every single night on exactly what had happened. Uh, and that was being flown back to uh, Shabakov, who was the head of Glapurka, which was the head of the... Uh, which was given straight away to Stalin. And so you knew that this stuff actually was fantastic because it had all the details of the real courage and the real heroism, but also all the details of the scandals, drunken commanders, uh, uh, chaotic um, supplies, and uh, passing over to the enemy and surrenders and so forth. So you knew that was real gold. Anyway, so Luba and I finally, uh, it took five months before they finally allowed us in. And um, Luba and I um, arrived on the first day, um, and it was a hell of a trip getting down there. And we found ourselves having to work on the other side of the desk from Colonel Shuvashin, who was the deputy director of the archive. Uh, he had quite a good sense of humour. I mean, he was, uh, he, at one point, and this was interesting, uh, this interesting uh, uh, illustration of Soviet alpha male behaviour in the army. Um, the more senior officer stands up and bellows into the telephone to um, emphasise his superiority. But the trouble was the telephone wasn't working very well, so he slammed down the telephone. He pointed to it, he said, Soviet 1960s model, it would be easier to shout to Moscow. <laughs> and, which was probably true, but anyway, we were very, very cautious, and they had actually uh, selected the files, i.e., although we had this huge pile of files, every single one had pieces of paper sticking out of them, i.e., they had chosen which pages we were allowed to re read, and everything else was forbidden. Now, the pages they'd chosen for us to read were quite often letters of praise to Comrade Stalin from soldiers at the front, or whatever they might be, uh, and everything else was basically forbidden. So Luba and I were incredibly careful that first morning. Thank God, because towards the end of the morning, the door suddenly opened, and this character appeared uh, with dark glasses and a moustache, and he spoke very good English indeed, and this was somebody called Colonel Grigor Yerovich Starkov, and 
Colonel Starkov was GRU. He had GRU written all over it, and the, which was the military intelligence. Still exists today. Uh, in fact, they were the guys involved in poisoning the Screep Owls in uh, Salisbury. Uh, anyway, fortunately, I didn't um, have any sort of uh, polonium tea or whatever the stuff was. Um, and he then said, right, um, you know, uh, asked me, oh, that's right, yes, his first question was, was I looking for negative material? Um, and so I had to reply with this sort of deliberately boring treatise on the duty of objectivity of a <laughs> historian, which cut no ice whatsoever with Colonel Starkov. And then he said, right, he said, it is time for lunch. He said, you can leave your bags and your papers here. The canteen is up the road and all the rest of it. And anyway, this is the fascinating thing with Russia where you have this uh, extraordinary combination of paranoia and naivety. So having been sort of paranoid, they went through all of our papers and our bags. Uh, and then when we got back in the afternoon, we found that we had been put in a lecture room down the hall with all of the files unsupervised. So it was a bit like cheating in an exam. Luba had our finger in one of the permitted passages. We worked like hell through, as fast as we could, um, through all of the documents. Um, and we were able to get away with that for a, a bit of time, thank God, before they suddenly realized we were spending too much time on sort of the, the key ones, which were, as I say, the reports of the political department. But anyway, then it came to... Um, I was staying with the Canadian uh, political attaché, uh, who was a great friend, Chris Alexander, and later ambassador in uh, Moscow. And I remember on the uh, very first day when I got back, Chris said, oh, do you want to ring Artemis in London? Uh, and I said, yes, absolutely. And I, I rang Artemis and saying, um, it's fantastic. I never thought we'd get near this material. And you suddenly saw signals from Chris. He <laughs> said, basically, shut up, you idiot. You know, uh, as a diplomat, of course, his, um, his telephone was pugged. Um, and when he got to the very end, um, uh, they brought in, they suddenly got very nervous. Uh, because what had happened was Pikoya, who was the minister of the archives under Yeltsin, had forced the military to open up their archives. They didn't want to do it at all. And the idea of having in uh, a British historian, above all a British historian who had been in the Cold War on the other side of the frontier of the inner German border, um, for them was almost sort of like opening it up to foreign spies because for them the Great Patriotic War was still sort of contemporary material in their view. It wasn't sort of historical. And um, so when it came to the end, they had insisted on seeing all of my notebooks. Well, fortunately, I realized that one of the important things was to have those wire-spined wire notebooks, because you could rip out the pages without it showing. Uh, so that was where most of the sort of material had come out, and I kept that back at Chris's flat. So when I, at the end, they insisted on going through the notebooks. Um, fortunately, it seemed to be then everything was all right. But when I got back and that, and Chris said to me, he said, listen, they know you're flying out tomorrow. You could have every single piece of paper confiscated um, from your luggage and there's nothing you'd be able to do about it. So he took me into the Canadian embassy the next morning and we photocopied every single page of notes, just in case. But my God, it was at Sheremetyevo Airport going out thinking, okay, boys, you can take the lot, but it went. Uh, it was a huge relief, I can tell you. How exhilarating to get that kind of raw material, that kind of new understanding of, of stuff that had been previously completely closed off to you. It was incredibly exciting. And I mean, I, I was in touch with John Erickson, who was sort of, you know, my hero in terms of sort of that 
uh, uh, the history of the history of the Red Army in the Second World War at that particular stage, uh, and John was a huge help. And um, no, I mean it was it was it was extremely exciting. But I mean again, I, as I say, I was phenomenally lucky on timing. I mean if they hadn't opened, if Poikoya had not forced the military to open their archives at that particular stage, uh, I'd have got still got some pretty good stuff from some of the other archives because one of the advantages, and this is one thing always to remember, um, is that in a bureaucratic society like uh, the Soviet Union, uh, copies have to be sent, and usually uh, that would have meant the copies in many cases were sent to um, Gaspi, which was the Russian State Archive for Social Political History, the old uh, Comintern archive and uh, party archive. Uh, and so quite often you could find stuff which might be banned elsewhere uh, there. Nowadays what historians are doing is they're going to Kiev um, to the Ukrainian archives because uh, the KGB in Kiev often had um, all of the material quite often sent copies from Moscow. And so in the SBU archive in Kiev, where I've got somebody working for me at the moment, um, you know, you can still find a huge amount of stuff which you can now wouldn't be able to touch in Moscow. So what's the relationship in time, in concept, in work between that kind of archival discovery and that kind of archival work and the book? the creation of the book. At what point, it's not there to serve a thesis you already have, it's a, a process of discovery. And having made that discovery, then you're identifying what the story is that you're gonna tell? Uh, yes, interestingly, after Stalingrad, the BBC asked me to do a sort of masterclass for all of their journalists and documentary filmmakers um, into how you go around processing your material and uh, organizing it and all the rest of it. And since then, I've done it in a number of universities for their PhD students uh, on basically how to, the, the marshalling as well as the research. So you've got your first phase of background reading so that you know roughly, you know the subject well enough before you even hit the archives, uh, then you hit the archives, but you've got to have a skeleton uh, chapters uh, um, and a structure uh, so that when you actually get your material from the archives, you can then start copying it across. Uh, and that will give you an idea of whether you've got too much material or too little material and all the rest of it. Um, and it's that marshalling period of um, the material uh, which is actually the vital thing in terms of the structure uh, that you're eventually going to end up with. Um, and um, I can tell you one thing, and that's certainly, I'm old enough to have started in the days when it was the electric typewriter and the card index system. And one of the reasons why books, and here's an apology I'm afraid to read, is why books are so much thicker nowadays than they were before, is that you can deal with so much more material nowadays than you could in the past, simply because of the joys of the computer. You never lose the material and you can keep copying it across. I would put money on the fact there's not a person in this room who says, oh no, the new Anthony Beaver book's really fat. I think they're quite relieved that there's... Uh... I've even cheated in the past of trying to keep them behind, underneath 500 pages. And the only way we could do this with a Berlin book, and this I'm afraid is a confession, uh, was by sticking all the maps in the front in the Roman numeral pages so that actually that <laughs> kept it down to 497 at the end. That is a cheat only marginally better than narrower margins on the page. Exactly. You're, you're yeah. really cheating your way there. But I'm, I'm interested, I, I said... I said by way of introduction that I think your work manages to be simultaneously forensic and humane. And it's the, um, it's the humanity of it, it's the horrors that you're uncovering in that research. That that's why I'm, I'm so desperate about. for those moments of 
of humanity, especially unpredictable. I mean, I will never forget, because, I mean, you are once desperate, if you like, to find something which gives, restores a little tiny bit of faith in humanity over the horrors of war. And I remember this thing of Russian women in Stalingrad uh, rubbing the feet of German soldiers because they were frostbitten to try to sort of keep them alive and prevent them from hoping, just in the hope, that some mother somewhere might do the same for their son. Now, they would have probably, if they'd been discovered by the secret police or whatever, they'd have been straight into the gulag or even executed for having shown any compassion at all towards the enemy in such a ruthless, brutal war. But, you know, moments like that are, well, I, I'm, as I say, incredibly precious. The writing and the gathering of the material, though, for you and your translator took a toll. I mean, it was... It was it, well, not so much on the Stalingrad, it was, it was particularly Berlin. on the Berlin book, yeah. yeah. Um, the reception you got in Russia for the Stalingrad book was surprisingly... Maybe not surprisingly, I don't know, but it was, it was quite positive. It was, it was seen yes. um, uh, as a work that was uh, recognised. Well, the, the, the head Russian <coughs> historian, i.e. he was the uh, president of uh, the Academy of Sciences, the president, president of the uh, Association of Second World War Historians, Professor Oleg Rezhuzhevsky, um, was incredibly um, helpful to me as a result of the Stalingrad book. But he turned against me uh, savagely over the Berlin book. He was very much a veteran of the Second World War, and for him, the reputation of the Red Army should not be besmirched in any way. And it was quite interesting because everything turned out badly to start with. I was just finishing the book um, when my publishers said, oh, well, listen, we are, we're going to give a, a certain amount of information to the bookseller uh, on it. And they said, you know, don't worry, it'll be fine, it's just for the booksellers. Well, of course, the newspapers then leapt on it, and the Daily Telegraph did a two-page spread speculating what might be in the book. I then started getting attacked by the Russian ambassador straight away, um, uh, attacked me. And, but then, to my astonishment, I suddenly got this telephone call, and this deep voice said, Antono, this is Grigory, we must have lunch together. And um, so I had a pint of full cream milk, as you might imagine, to line my <laughs> stomach. And when I arrived at the Russian embassy, um, it really was extraordinary. It was almost like something out of a sort of slightly bad spy novel, in a way. Uh, he took me through to uh, the uh, office, which Maisky had been the famous Russian ambassador during the Second World War, uh, where this table was laid just for the two of us, and there was one bottle of vodka in front of each place, uh, in front of our places, and we were served by this stunningly beautiful, uh, I mean, she would have launched a thousand spy novels herself, um, young woman. And um, anyway, but uh, Karazin, the ambassador, uh, said, wasted very little time, and he said, you have got to understand the victory is sacred. And I suddenly realized, in fact, I had obviously underestimated the reaction that the material that we discovered on the mass rapes, I mean, some, according to Helga Sander, a German historian who'd worked on it, you know, she was estimating probably more than two million German women were raped, and the constantly, repetitively, and in gang rape format and so forth. Um, and, of course, the victory was sacred. Even for those who hated Stalin, even for those who'd been in the gulag, 
after all of those generations of suffering from the uh, Russian Revolution, the Civil War, the famines afterwards, the uh, purges, and, and of course the horrors of the Second World War, the one thing every Russian could feel proud of was the victory over the fascist beast in 1945. And so for, for them, even though many of them knew about the rapes, for them it was something which was, should be unspeakable or unspoken. And that's when I was condemned for lies, slander, and blasphemy against the Red Army. And that has gone on. And, uh, you know, the Kremlin press has always described me as the, uh, the chief calumniator of the, uh, of the Red Army and various other things, chief slanderer. Um, and perhaps I should have... Um, there was one, I must tell, there was, was one funny little thing. Um, the German ambassador, Hans Friedrich von Plötz, um, not realizing any of this, um, said to me, he said, oh, he said, Anthony, he said, um, we must sh I want to show how grown up we are nowadays about the Second World War. I want to give a launch party with my friend Grigory Karazin, the Russian ambassador, <laughs> for the launch of a book. I said, ambassador, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, so I, I sent him a copy of the manuscript, I and mean, we didn't even have proofs at that stage. Um, and a very short time later, I mean, I remember it was on a Sunday morning, suddenly an early telephone call, and he said, uh, good morning, he said, uh, good morning, this is um, Hans Friedrich von Plötz, the German ambassador. He said, I now understand what you are trying to say to me. Um, <laughs> he said, uh, what is more, he said, not only can I not give a, a joint launch party, he said, I can't even give a launch party on my own. You see, my next appointment is Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> So I did, <laughs> I did, that was quite funny, I have to say, but anyway. Um, I did come across Karazin. There was a conference at the Foreign Office on the exchange of wartime documents between the, between the Soviet Union and um, Britain. Um, and they had in the great Russian historians of uh, Chubarin, Reshevsky, and so forth. Uh, and by that stage, um, Reshevsky would not speak to me. Um, and I felt, because I'd, had, I'd also sent a copy of the manuscript, having sent one to uh, von Plötz, uh, I felt I should send one to Karazin. And um, I, he was there, and I felt I had to uh, say something to him. So I said, I'm sorry if you've had so much to read or whatever. And he is much, much taller than me. And he looked over the top of my head and he said, your book is very interesting, but I cannot possibly approve. And I said, look, well, I understand. But then things got increasingly nasty after that, especially when the book came out. And... Presumably, that's a relationship that hasn't improved since? No. Um, I mean, it's sometimes rather paradoxical. It actually got worse when um, Sergei Shoigu, who is now the Minister of Defence, uh, he first, when he was Minister for Extraordinary Affairs, isn't that a lovely title, wouldn't, I? wouldn't you like to be a Minister for Extraordinary Affairs? Um, when he was Minister for Extraordinary Affairs, he said that any insult to the Red Army in the Second World War, he said, was the equivalent of Holocaust denial. I thought well, that was quite an interesting concept, but anyway, not one I would have agreed with. And he wanted to bring in this law through the Duma that anybody um, who um, went in for it. It wasn't just aimed against foreign historians like me, but it was also aimed against the Baltic states because they had been coming out with uh, their version that, you know, that the Red Army hadn't liberated them, that it had been um, an oppressor. Um, and then, but then when Shoigu became appointed by Putin as uh, Minister of Defense, he then did bring in the law through the uh, Duma. Um, and I don't think, in fact, funny enough, I was in Tallinn, I was in Estonia uh, with Catherine Meridale um, by chance. And we suddenly realized that we were both in the firing line in that particular way, because I didn't know that actually the, the law had just gone through. Um, I didn't think anything would necessarily happen, but I don't think it's worth taking the risk, because I have not been back. 
I love the idea that uh, history that uncovers unpleasant truths is analogous with history denial, that the two of them are somehow equal crimes. Well, you're absolutely right. And what's fascinating, and I think it's deeply alarming, is whether in Ukraine or in Russia or whatever, you know, there are certain no-go areas. Um, my Russian publishers, and funny enough, I did have Russian publishers, but I mean, for, for example, for Stalingrad, um, they described, in their translation, they described the uh, Ukrainian militia who had supported the SS and helped in the, uh, what Vasily Grossman described as the Shoah by bullets as opposed to the Shoah by gas, i.e. in the 1941 to early 42. Um, he described them, uh, or the translator had written not Ukrainian militia, uh, because they say, of course, militia in Russian, that means police. Um, he had put Ukrainian nationalists. And so then the book got banned in Ukraine. So, I mean, you know, and then I found, to my exasperation and fury, that the Russian embassy in London was tweeting um, that um, attacking Ukrainians for banning my book uh, when they had already um, had their own attacks before. But anyway, it gives you an idea. And in Poland, you see, for example, then there was uh, Peace, the uh, Law and Justice Party, uh, then started to try to ban anybody mentioning the, f the fact that the uh, concentration camps were, well, but they were right to say they were not Polish concentration camps, and that had been, if you like, uh, to very um, slovenly on the part of some people describing them as obviously as Polish concentration camps, just because of the fact they, were, they had been on former Polish territory at that particular point. Um, but then they tried to get in a form of denial in their law uh, passed uh, through the CM um, against anybody suggesting that uh, any Pole had anything to do with collaboration uh, with the Germans. But actually, uh, in Poland, there was a far lower level of collaboration uh, with the German occupiers than almost any other, any other country. But it was, there was still this uh, obsessive um, sensitivity to the subject. Obviously, or presumably not anywhere near in the same order, but are there no-go territories for a British historian when it comes to British history? Well, none that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, there were one or two things where uh, conspiracy theories have started to, well, not have started, have been there for a long time, you know. Why, why are the documents on Rudolf Hess still um, sort of closed? Uh, I don't know, and I'm, 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 I'm fairly, I, I'm, there may be that there was, uh, I don't know, is there something there about the Duke of Hamilton or whatever? I have no idea, but for some reason the documents uh, have not been um, released. Um, but I don't think that there's, as, as far as I know, any sort of real uh, no-go areas, um, and certainly not in Germany. I mean, Germany is extraordinarily uh, open in that, particular, in that particular way. Particularly in the military history space, I mean, it, it becomes so fraught and loaded with patriotism and, and national identity. Sorry, I just remembered in France, of course, um, there is, shall we say, the Vichy period is still very, very um, sensitive indeed. What was fascinating was that um, the French government suddenly discovered that large numbers, of course, of uh, French archives had been taken by the Germans in 1944 as they abandoned Paris after the liberation 
Federation, uh, then took these back to uh, Berlin. And of course, the Russians had then taken them from Berlin back to Moscow. And they suddenly realized that there were some uh, foreign historians accessing them in, uh, not an archive, but in the, uh, these sort of huge sheds near Sheremetyevo Airport. And mixed in were the Rothschild papers from Vienna and elsewhere. Um, and uh, so they were, the French uh, government started to panic that there might be some really embarrassing stuff about Vichy. So they got Madame, uh, she was an extraordinary woman, I remember her well, Madame uh, Chantal Tottier Bonazzi, who was the head of the modern section in the Archive Nationale in Paris, to go and negotiate uh, with the um, uh, Russian government um, under Yeltsin uh, to get all these papers back. And they were sort of brought back almost in a sealed train, as if it was sort of, you know, Lenin being... <laughs> and um, actually, in the end, they found there was actually very, very little. Um, and they needed to panic. But apparently, they paid a huge amount. And it didn't actually do them much good, because actually there had been um, Russian archivists who hadn't been paid, had been secretly microfilming lots of them, and then flogging <laughs> them off to historians left and right. <laughs> I mean, at one stage, at one stage, I remember by an English property uh, developer or exploiter or whatever he was doing in Moscow, uh, suddenly rang me up and said, you're a historian. He said, I've had a bad debt and they've offered to pay me um, with all of these <laughs> archives. Are, are you interested in buying them off me? It's an excellent uh, argument for good workplace relations right there is not to give stuff to the historians. No. Um, you haven't exclusively focused on it, but the great passion, the great driving force of your work in your life is the Second World War. Yes. Why that war? Well, I started in a way with the Sp Spanish Civil War, um, partly in a way because it was sort of an overture to the Second World War, and there are many in Spain still who are convinced that uh, it was the opening round of the, of the Second World War. And, um, you know, the whole debate about when was the long war of the 20th century, when did it start, when did it end, I mean, is a, a wonderful thing for historians to argue about, but probably incredibly boring for anybody else. Um, but I was fascinated by the Second World War. I was born up, brought up born and brought up in that sort of post-war society. Um, and, you know, as actually Artemis mentioned um, in her talk yesterday or whatever, they, everybody of that generation were defined by whether they'd had a good war or not. Uh, and one was incredibly conscious of this. My father had been in SOE and um, was in the head but chief of SOE in Italy um, on General Alexander's staff, Field Marshal Alexander's staff. Um, and he'd had a good war, there was no doubt about it. And and, um, you know, but there was almost a sort of a mafia amongst those who'd known themselves in the second, who'd known each other in the Second World War. Uh, and uh, when I say a mafia, you know, that they often, they knew each other, they trusted each other, and so they were all sort of giving each other jobs in different companies and all the rest of it. Um, but it, the Second World War did dominate virtually everything in that particular period. And you realize that in, in, in no uncertain terms, it wasn't, one talks about the dead, um, and one goes on about the statistics of their dead, but one underestimates how much everybody's lives have been changed by the Second World War. Particularly, I mean, my mother's life had been changed by the Second World War. Might well have been ended, um, because there was this extraordinary thing of uh, Ian Fleming wanted her to parachute into northern Italy. And our, our family had lived out there for quite a long time, although there was no um, actual sort of Italian part of the family. But she could speak the local dialect in the Lunigiana, which was where the La Spezia was the, one of the most 
important naval bases. And of course, in 1940, the British were desperate to find out about the, uh, the Italian Navy. So fortunately, um, she was actually pregnant with my oldest brother, so I've always been grateful to him for that. Um, and so couldn't, couldn't parachute in. Um, but she was, she was definitely, I mean, everybody at that particular stage, 1940, was desperate to do whatever they could for the war effort, and she would have gone. One of the extraordinary things going across your body of work is the way you zoom in or out on aspects of the war based on the particular book. And I, I'm curious about why, having um, come at that war from several different angles, why it was that Operation Market Garden and Arnhem felt to you like a moment you wanted to re return to in its own right, that you had uh, touched on it in earlier works, but this was one that deserved its own 500 pages in Roman numerals. <laughs> Just under 500. Just please. under, very restrained. Um, I had always been rather irritated by previous books on Market Garden. A, because they focused purely on the military side, and actually the suffering of the Dutch was appalling, and what they suffered as a consequence of this blunder, disaster, um, but I was also irritated by the way, and this was again the sort of the old uh, myth of heroic failure, which I'm afraid the British have always been rather obsessed with, um, of the idea that somehow if any of this had gone right or that had gone right, then the whole thing would have been a fantastic success. No, I mean it was a very bad plan, as I think I show quite clearly, <coughs> right from the start. And it was both above all the fault of Mac Montgomery, but also of General Browning. And uh, Montgomery, uh, refused to trust the Royal Air Force. He thought they were cowardly, um, partly because I think Field Ma uh, uh, Air Chief Marshal uh, Lee Mallory had sort of panicked just before D-Day, thinking that the airdrops in Normandy were going to be a disaster. Um, and so Montgomery decided he was, to quote, a gutless bugger, uh, and he wasn't going to do anything with the Air Force. But he had been actually told by Eisenhower and actually by the War Office um, that any airborne operation had to be planned jointly with the Air Force because it was going to be their aircraft and all the rest of it. Montgomery wasn't going to have any of that. He was going to impose his plan. But his plan did not take into account uh, some of the technical limitations. I mean, they underestimated the distance and uh, uh, the hours of daylight and all the rest of it. And so he sent Browning back to uh, Britain to tell the uh, First Allied Airborne Army what they were going to do. And they had to say, well, sorry, we can't do this, we can't do that, and all the rest of it. And so it was an appalling plan, which had not, never been allowed to go forward. Um, and who, of course, suffered. Uh, obviously, the soldiers involved, and they fought incredibly bravely. Um, the Poles, uh, it was, uh, as many people observed afterwards, rather fortunate that it was the British division which got torn to pieces, uh, rather than the Americans, because you can imagine what the disaster would have been. It was a pretty big, big disaster already, anyway, for um, Anglo-American relations. Um, but above all, it was the Dutch who suffered. Um, and I mean, it was absolutely appalling what one found. I mean, in, I remember, we'll never forget in the uh, National Archives, the uh, National Archives at Kew, where they have one of the most valuable resources that, that any archive could have. They have the secretly, they have the transcripts of the secretly recorded conversations of German officers in British captivity. And there were some of them boasting uh, what had happened was the Germans in revenge had actually uh, cut off the food supplies to the major cities, to Rotterdam, uh, Amsterdam, and The Hague. 
uh, and the populations were starving. Over 20,000 died of, literally of starvation. And there you actually had in the archives the way that apparently um, German um, Wehrmacht soldiers and officers were boasting that they didn't need to pay at a brothel because for half a loaf of bread they could get any Dutch girl to do whatever they wanted. I mean, it, that, that was, gave you an idea of what that did to the Dutch. And I think the fact that the Dutch forgave the British for what they suffered as a result of that uh, appalling disaster um, is actually one of the most touching legacies of the Second World War. I mean, I'll be there again in September um, when it will be the 75th anniversary, and there it is a day on which all of the children lay flowers on all of the graves of the soldiers who fought there, and there are sort of triumphal <coughs> arches erected to uh, welcome, welcome the veterans. It, it, it's one of the most incredibly moving things in the book, and I mm -hmm. think um, that, uh, that counterbalance between the human cost and particularly the civilian cost yes. um, uh, with the myth of heroic failure, as you yes. say, the, the idea that um, these things can be understood as strategies and procedures and you say, well, that didn't work, but that's fine. Uh, and, and you get to that human level of detail in a way that is, is deeply distressing. I was wondering if you could share for those in the audience who haven't had a chance to read it yet, um, the account of the uh, standstill just before the Wehrmacht counterattack, uh, the, uh, the moment at which when German and British soldiers agreed not to fire on each other while drawing supplies, because I think that description in the book is incredibly powerful. Oh, there. Um, well, this was a moment when at the very end of August and the first couple of days of, the first two or three days of September, when there was one of the most incredible advances of the whole of the Second World War. After the um, victory in Normandy, uh, the um, absolute massacre in the Falaise pocket, um, the remnants of the German 7th Army and uh, the 5th Panzer Army uh, were pulling back in desperation towards not just uh, back in France behind the River Seine, but all the way into Belgium and back to the German frontier. I mean, that was why it was such a crushing victory. And you have, you know, uh, all of the British uh, cavalry regiments charging forward with all their tanks. I mean, it was a moment of complete victory, euphoria. Uh, even General Bradley said that, uh, or he, no, it's General Bradley's aide who wrote in his diary at this particular moment, you know, um, everybody's excited as a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of girls going off to a sophomore party. I think he said sort of something like that, or sophomore dance. Uh, and it was true. Everybody thought that, you know, the war was just about to be over. Um, what they had completely underestimated was the fact that the failure to kill Hitler at the bomb plot uh, on the 20th of July meant that now the Nazis had total control over the Wehrmacht and in fact the war was going to go on until the day Hitler died, or the day after at least. And um, this was a major mm, intelligence misapprehension. Uh, but they charred forward, and at this particular stage, of course, the uh, resistance had emerged. They were trying to round up German troops, and of course, German troops were terrified of surrendering to the resistance because they thought they'd be massacred straight off, uh, or even worse. And uh, but uh, so, as a result, they uh, would only insist on, if they could, uh, on only surrendering to uh, British troops. And then there was, you know, agreement that they wouldn't open fire anymore. And um, and then uh, what was this extraordinary German paradox was that having ordered this officer, having ordered all of his soldiers to smash their weapons on the ground, uh, 
Um, he then, they then had to um, uh, shout in unison, so, you know, seek Heil, seek Heil, um, as if hail victory, uh, as if, you know, somehow the old mantra of Sieg Heil was still going to come about, but uh, that was, I shall we say, the German core confusion of course and effect was always one of the things which fascinated me. Yeah. I'd ask you to join me in thanking the extraordinary Anthony Davis. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.